Friends. She and I met in Kigali at a conference and spent the next six weeks trying to organize a trip for me to go visit the cancer hospital where she was working, <laughs> where all the cancer patients were. <laughs> and we had many, we've had many trips back and forth uh, since then. Becky had an early attraction to oncology with a concentration in the biology and human experience of cancer as she earned her BA from Stanford. She then worked as a clinical research coordinator at UCSF before getting her MD and MA in bioethics and medical humanities from Northwestern, which also included a clinical clerkship in Uganda. Residency was at the University of Chicago, with, which also included an elective in Nigeria, followed by a fellowship in medical ethics at McLean, two years in Rwanda, and now her Hemong Fellowship at UCSF. During her fellowship, she has received the Rachel Perline Award for Extraordinary Commitment to Patient Care, a Fogarty Grant for Shared Decision-Making for Cancer Treatment in Rwanda, a Greenwall Foundation Award for Ethical Radiotherapy Prioritization in Rwanda, and because she was so heavily laden with grants and projects, she actually had to decline a Global Cancer Pilot Award from UCSF, um, which she didn't do. <laughs> Still doing the so, okay. So she will now take over and tell you about her extraordinary work, for which she has no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. And as I said to our fellows yesterday, I think you'll really enjoy her presentation because Dr. DeBoer is an inspiring woman who is carving her own career path with grantsmanship and passion, and it's applicable to whatever career path you may be on. Please welcome. Thank you. All right, great. Can everyone hear me? Um, so thank you, Dr. Chamberlain, for that very kind introduction. Um, and thank you all for coming to Grand Rounds to hear this talk, Leapfrogging, Task Shifting, and Growing the Pie, Stories and Strategies for the Application of Implementation Science to Cancer Care in Low-Resource Settings. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here at Dartmouth today. Um, Oh, you know what? This is the wrong slideshow. <laughs> Hang on. Give me one minute for a quick swap out. I am so sorry. Actually, so sorry. I think... Um, no, I'm just going to wing it here. Let me... Sorry, Paula. It's okay. Let me, I put the wrong version on here. Okay, this is it. The one that says use this one. Can't miss that one. Can't miss that one. Okay, hopefully this is right. Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. 
All right. Hopefully this will work. Use this one. I really hope this is the right one. Okay, yeah, that's it. Okay. All right. You're no, I'm no stranger to technical difficulties. We have a lot of them in global health. <laughs> um, this is my disclosure statement. I have no disclosures. Okay. So what I'd like to do today is tell three stories um, for you. There are three different projects uh, from my work in Rwanda and Tanzania. And I think that they all illustrate examples of the importance of implementation science um, and the need for ethics research in global oncology capacity building. Um, first, I'll tell you a story about linking diagnosis to treatment of CML in uh, Rwanda. Then I'll discuss how we've applied lessons learned in Rwanda to work that we're doing in Tanzania. Um, and then finally, I'll describe how we're using implementation science to address one of the most pressing ethical challenges that we face in our program in Rwanda, uh, which is patient prioritization for radiotherapy. And the learning objectives are to understand the key principles of implementation science, to uh, understand how to apply implementation science methods to global oncology challenges, and to be able to identify some ethical concepts that are relevant to treating cancer in resource-limited settings. Um, so I'll begin with uh, the story of treating CML in Rwanda. And it sounds like you have had other lectures about our program in Butaro, so I'll try to breeze through the background. But um, essentially, Rwanda, as, as you know, is a small landlocked country in East Central Africa. Um, this month actually marks the 25th anniversary of the genocide against the Tutsi, um, which decimated the population and destroyed the infrastructure of the country, including the healthcare system. Um, and, and in the years since, the government of Rwanda has really led a remarkable recovery um, and ushered in an era of peace and stability and economic growth and um, has really rebuilt the society uh, with the engagement of international aid and partners. Um, and in that context, Partners in Health, uh, which is the human rights-based NGO that was founded by Paul Farmer and Jim Kim um, initially in Haiti, uh, Partners in Health began working in Rwanda in 2007, um, supporting care delivery and health system strengthening at three rural district hospitals, including Butaro. Uh, so Butaro is the northernmost orange dot on that map. Um, and initially, PIH was very focused on their usual global health, health uh, wheelhouse, so uh, HIV, TB, and malaria, um, and maternal and child health. And at the time, most cancer patients in Rwanda were sent home to die, usually without a pathologic diagnosis. Um, and so the Minister of Health, uh, Dr. Agnes Benaguahu, recognizing the need to build oncology capacity, asked PIH, who was already there uh, providing accompaniment, to help. And, and eventually, in 2012, the Butaro Cancer Center uh, was open. Um, and the mission of the Cancer Center was to, and still is, to provide a preferential option for the poor in cancer care. 
So what does that look like? So, so Butaro is a cancer care delivery program at a rural district hospital um, that's supported by the ministry, uh, largely financed by Partners in Health, um, and engages oncology advisors like Dr. Chamberlain and Dr. Lansigan from Dartmouth, others from Dana-Farber, um, and, and is able to provide basic oncology services. So um, we have biopsy and, and pathology capacity that's grown over the years. We now have immunohistochemistry on site. There, we have uh, x-ray and ultrasound capacity on site, and we have to send patients to the capital city for CT scans. <laughs> We're able to perform basic cancer surgeries, um, and we refer to Kigali for ENT or GYN surgeries. Uh, we give chemotherapy through a task-shifting model, which we'll talk about. We provide referrals for radiotherapy, which we'll, we'll also talk about, and we provide palliative care. Task-shifting is the process of redistributing tasks from more highly specialized workforce to less specialized health workers. And the concept of task shifting was really popularized during the movement to scale up HIV treatment because clearly there were never going to be enough infectious disease specialists to, or even doctors to treat the world's HIV patients. Um, and the same is true for cancer. Um, it will be many decades before we're able, before there are enough oncologists to treat the world's cancer patients. Um, so uh, at Butaro, um, really for most of the program, there have not been oncologists full-time on the ground. And care is provided by internists, uh, pediatricians, general practitioners, um, using protocols and, and remote guidance from advisors in the U.S. Um, and, and with these basic uh, oncology services, uh, we still have many limitations, although it's a huge improvement from where we started from. And so it's been clear from the beginning that we're not able to treat all cancers at Butaro, and the leaders of the program had to decide which cancers are we going to treat. Um, and the, the goal from the beginning has been to focus on cancers that were prevalent and either curable, curable or highly treatable with the available resources. Um, and, and this is a list of the the cancers that are most commonly treated. Um, we, we could tell a story about each one of them in terms of how the capacity has grown in the, in the seven years that the program's been in existence, but we'll focus on CML today. Um, so as, as this audience knows, CML is a myeloproliferative neoplasm uh, associated with the Philadelphia chromosome, um, a reciprocal translocation in chromosomes 9 and 22 that results in the fusion of BCR and ABLE uh, genes and encodes a dysregulated tyrosine kinase um, that, that drives the disease. And, and CML was the first malignancy shown to be associated with a particular gene, uh, genetic mutation. Um, and until 2001, the treatment options for CML were limited. Um, but in the 90s, the development of the oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor imatinib, which uh, targets the BCR-ABLE fusion protein um, and essentially shuts off the proliferative process, revolutionized the treatment of CML and really changed the landscape of, of cancer care. Um, and, and now imatinib and then second and third generation TKIs are able to achieve long-term disease control in the vast majority of CML patients, and, and many are living now near normal lifespans. 
But while TKIs have transformed the disease in high-income countries, they're still not available to the vast majority of patients uh, in low- and middle-income countries. And um, for the most part, these patients are still dying of their disease. So the Max Foundation is a nonprofit organization that was established by the family of a CML patient who died in 1997, just a few years before imatinib was approved. And the mission of their organization was to expand access to targeted therapies uh, for people living in, in low- and middle-income countries. And so they established a partnership with Novartis um, uh, through what's called the Gleevec International Patient Assistance Program, or GPAP. And this started as sort of a grassroots effort, and now GPAP is um, in over 70 different countries worldwide and providing uh, targeted therapies to thousands of patients. So in order to register a patient for imatinib through the GPAP program, they must have confirmation of BCR ABLE. And when Butaro first opened its doors in 2012, pathology capacity was very limited, at, and, and we didn't have any molecular diagnostics in the country. And so, um, you know, most of our tissue biopsy specimens at that time we, were actually being shipped to Boston, and including bone marrow biopsy specimens um, and, and peripheral blood sometimes for, to do quantitative PCR for CML. Um, and it, could take up to six weeks, typically, for patients to actually receive their result. Um, and then, in 2015, things changed. We began using the GeneXpert machine to diagnose CML. GeneXpert is a quantitative PCR machine that's manufactured by a company called Cepheid, um, and it's widely used in low- and middle-income countries to diagnose multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. So it's actually... Um, commonly found, it's a recommended by the WHO that district hospitals have gene expert machines. And so um, in oncology, we've been able to use this uh, technology to, with a, a cartridge for BCR able to diagnose CML with a peripheral blood specimen. And we now have gene expert machines at our hospitals in Rwanda. We're able to make a diagnosis of CML in a couple of days and start patients on Gleevec therapy uh, immediately. And so we think of this gene expert example as uh, gene expert as an example of, of leapfrogging. So in, in global health and development, leapfrogging is this idea that um, development can be accelerated by skipping inferior, less efficient, or, or more expensive technologies and moving directly to more advanced ones. Um, and you know the, the classic example is that people in many parts of the world. Are, have never had access to a landline phone and have, have cell phones. And, and it's another example of reverse innovation, uh, which we were talking about, this idea that we can really um, learn more about innovative approaches in sort of the, the laboratory of global health that, that we can potentially apply in, in settings in high-income countries as well. Um, so we recently uh, conducted a cohort study of our, our CML patients. Um, we've treated 124 patients with imatinib um, in, in our program. The median age is, is 34, which is very young compared to the typical age that we see here um, and really begs for more 
investigation. Um, all of our patients presented with symptoms, so these were not incidentally found cases of CML, um, and we think that they had a high burden of disease. We're, uh, 92% achieved complete hematologic remission. We don't have, we, we, we don't check for molecular remission in, in Rwanda. Um, and 71% and of, of those achieved CHR within 90 days. So that indicates to us that there's, the rates of a primary hematologic resistance are higher in our patient population. Um, the four-year overall survival is, is 79%. So um, it's important to us to have this data to be able to uh, understand our patient population clinically, obviously, and also to be able to demonstrate the feasibility of, of this approach trying to treat, um, treat disease in the absence of oncologists and the absence of molecular monitoring. We think we have a lot more to learn, but uh, this is an example of uh, progress so far. So the take-home messages, I think, from the, the CML story are that um, oncology capacity building at Butaro, and I would say in general, is a dynamic process that involves many partners, um, and it's possible, possible and I think common to make significant progress on a short timeline um, these days. Um, we talked about gene expert uh, as an example of leapfrogging, and, and we also talked about task shifting and the idea that cancers can be successfully treated by non-specialists through a task shifting model, um, and the need for research uh, to evaluate the effectiveness of these kinds of programs. Um, so at this point, you might be thinking, this sounds like an interesting approach at Butaro and maybe even innovative or compelling, but is it really generalizable? Most cancer centers in the world do not have an NGO like Partners in Health accompanying them. Um, and, and I'll tell you, I thought the same thing. Um, and it really wasn't until I began working in Tanzania that I, I fully appreciated the value of Butaro as a sort of laboratory for, for innovation and, um, and, and systems uh, strengthening in global oncology. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about the work that we're doing in Tanzania. So Tanzania is Rwanda's much larger uh, neighbor to the east. And in contrast to Rwanda, Tanzania has three referral hospitals with oncology capacity in the public system. Um, and they're staffed by trained oncologists. And the largest is Ocean Road Cancer Institute in Dar es Salaam. Um, uh, which is affiliated with Muhimbili, the, the large uh, national tertiary care center in, in the capital city. Um, and Ocean Road just got two new linear accelerators. They previously had two old cobalt radiation machines. Um, there's medical oncology capacity at Ocean Road and pediatrics at Muhimbili. And these are some pictures of Ocean Road. It's, a, it's actually, this is a hospital that was built in 1895 by the German colonial government, and then they have a, a new um, building that's where the wards actually are now. It's a government cancer center that's directly under the Ministry of Health and affiliated with Muhimbili. They see 5,000 patients or more a year. Um, and the cancer care is free. Um, the, the government basically created this clause that any patient who has a pathologic diagnosis of cancer can 
receive uh, chemotherapy and radiotherapy for free. There are a few caveats. So, so pathology, um, CT scans, and, and a lot of radiology and, and surgery happens at Muhimbili, and, and uh, patients have to pay out of pocket for those things. But once they have a diagnosis, they can come to Ocean Road and receive free care. The other caveat is that um, there are unfortunately drug shortages in the chemothera chemotherapy supply and breakdowns in the radiation machine. So there's not sort of a necessarily consistent free care, but those things have improved significantly in, in recent years. Um, and it, it is quite commendable that the Tanzanian government is at least striving to provide free cancer care in contrast to a lot of neighbors. Um, so as you all know, clinical practice guidelines are widely used in oncology and very important for clinical decision-making and healthcare quality assessment. Um, but for many years, the evidence-based guidelines that were considered sort of the international standard of care, um, like the NCCN guidelines, were just not useful in resource-limited settings. Um, and, and that changed in 2003, the Breast Health Global Initiative, which uh, was led by the, the group in Seattle, Ben Anderson and colleagues, um, created the first resource-stratified guideline framework for low- and middle-income countries. Um, and then years later, NCCN followed suit, and now ASCO is also creating resource-stratified guidelines. And so there's been a lot of energy and momentum in this area. Um, in Tanzania, the and I think a lot of other countries in Africa, they are involved in this guideline um, writing process, but also making, developing their own national cancer treatment guidelines. And so, so they had sort of this old set of treatment protocols from when the center first opened in 1996 that no one was using, and in the last few years have um, been working on plans to revise those national guidelines, and UCSF has actually been involved as external advisors for that process. Um, but I think that there's a lot of concern that if there's no deliberate effort made to implement the guidelines, they will likely just sit on a shelf along with a lot of other guidelines in global health that are uh, constantly coming out by the WHO and other um, international organizations. And so um, the leaders at, at Ocean Road were worried about this and asked our group at UCSF for accompaniment in the implementation effort. Um, and, and this is sort of in the context of a long-standing partnership between UCSF and Muhimbili. And so um, I was part of this team and, and, and basically um, attended training in implementation science methods and learned about the science of guideline implementation. And so I want to talk for a few minutes about some principles of implementation science because I think they're quite relevant here and to many of the projects that we're doing. So um, implementation science, this is, is defined as the scientific study of methods to promote the systematic uptake of proven clinical treatments practices, organizational interventions into routine practice uh, to improve health. And, and really the goal is to close the well-documented gap between research and practice. Um, and the often cited statistic is that it takes on average 17 years for the findings of our research to actually uh, make it into practice, and that's in a high resource setting. Um, and so 
this is um, a illustration of the paradigm of implementation science. In contrast to other research paradigms, implementation science starts with the evidence-based practice, um, such as those summarized by cancer treatment guidelines, and asks two questions. What strategy should we use to implement the, uh, the evidence-based practice? Um, and how do we evaluate our implementation of that strategy and, and improve it? Um, and ultimately look at the clinical impact, which is the, the end goal. Um, there are some key principles in implementation science that I think make it different from other types of related fields. Uh, the first is that behavior change is important. It's inherent to the translation of evidence into practice, policy, and public health improvements. So a lot of implementation science is focused on how to change behavior uh, at, at different levels. Um, another key principle is stakeholder engagement, um, which is imperative to achieve effective translation and sustained improvement in implementation outcomes, which sounds intuitive, but is actually a lot of work and, um, and, and very uh, takes a lot of effort. Implementation science research benefits from flexibility and often nonlinear approaches in order to fit real-world context. So in contrast to other types of research where you're trying to control lots of things, here you're actually embracing the, the real-world context and trying to accommodate. And so with these frameworks, um, we... Uh, We've moved forward with a guideline implementation plan um, for the Tanzanian National Guidelines. And there's been considerable research in the field of implementation science showing that the most effective way to promote guideline adherence is to use a structured implementation strategy that's designed based on uh, theoretical frameworks. And, and most of these frameworks essentially um, are ways of identifying barriers to the implementation of, of the practice that you're looking at. Um, so we designed a, a implementation strategy using a theory-based approach and then have planned a systematic evaluation of the implementation strategy. So I'll just introduce you to that. Um, there are many theories to choose from in, in implementation science, which is the first thing you learn if you take an introductory course. We uh, chose to use the behavior change wheel theory, which is one of the more popular um, theories that was developed by Susan Mitchie and colleagues. Um, and essentially, the behavior change wheel theory allows you to um, examine the behavior that you're trying to target. In our case, we're trying to target guideline-based practice. So, you know, currently in Tanzania, um, the clinicians are used to using their clinical experience and expertise to make decisions and not necessarily reaching towards guidelines. Um, and the question is, well, what is behind that behavior? In order to change a behavior, there has to be the capability to change it, the opportunity to change it, and the motivation to change it. And this framework really digs into those different aspects of behavior. Um, this is hard to read, but I want to just show you what what these, what the, what actually using these frameworks looks like. So, um, we use the behavior change will framework to identify all of the different types of barriers that are 
that are standing in the way of guideline-based practice so that we can identify interventions um, to target those barriers. And for each type of intervention, we have a strategy. So, um, and, and I'll summarize them in a, in a second, but I think what's interesting that I want to point out here is that many of the specific strategies that we're using for our guideline implementation in Tanzania actually came from my experience at Butaro. So at Butaro, especially in the setting of task shifting, we uh, really emphasize the importance of following our clinical protocols. Um, and we have developed systems to do that. So we have forms that we call DST forms, Diagnosis Staging Treatment Forms. And they're, they're clinical documentation uh, forms that require that the clinician confirms the pathologic diagnosis, confirms the stage, and prescribes the guideline concordant treatment, which sounds like a simple thing, but actually um, it's, it's hard to get people to do that, and sometimes I think that's true here as well. Um, so we put together all of those different individual strategies into a uh, into a, a summary implementation strategy that has three phases. Um, the first phase is the guideline launch. So we'll, we're planning to disseminate hard and soft copies. We're using a smartphone app to actually format the guidelines um, in an easily accessible way. Um, we're, the phase two will be a national summit, which is currently scheduled for July. It's gotten pushed back a couple times. Um, and the summit will be a, a forum not just for teaching the content of the guidelines, but also for skills training in, in guideline-based practice and, um, and implementation science. And then phase three will be an ongoing reinforcement um, phase, which is I think critically important. A lot of implementation strategies sort of stop at training. Um, so we'll have implementation champions whose job it will be to model and reinforce um, guideline-based practice. I mentioned already that we'll be using DST forms. And so, and the goal of all of this, of course, is to increase the rates of guideline concordant care, which has been identified as a, a problem area at Ocean Road. Um, how will we know if we've been successful? We're planning three different types of evaluation. These are three different studies being conducted by different teams at UCSF. The first is a program evaluation, which is a, um, an important type of study in implementation science to actually look at the implementation strategy itself so that you're able to identify what it is in your in sort of the black box of your intervention that actually um, targets the barriers that you're trying to target and produces the effects that you're trying to produce, um, and and uses metrics like feasibility: is this strategy feasible? Is it acceptable to the people who are on the receiving end? Um, is it sustainable? For example. We're also looking at the clinical effectiveness of our implementation strategy. Essentially, is there an increase in rates of guideline concordant treatment um, before and after our intervention? So um, we're looking at clinician-level outcomes, so how often is the, are the clinicians making guideline concordant decisions? And then we'll also look at the impact on patients.
Um, and finally, our health economics colleagues are looking at the economic impact of our intervention. They're specifically will be looking at healthcare utilization and cost before and after our intervention. Um, and, and then coupling it with the clinical data to perform a cost effectiveness analysis. That's the plan. Um, so, and so we're, as I said, waiting for the summit to happen, and, and um, so this study is currently in progress, but I think the key concepts are um, that implementation science has an important role in trying to close the gap between evidence and practice, especially in uh, global health, where there are a lot of complicated practice uh, level barriers, um, and the fundamental principles are, include behavior change, stakeholder engagement, and flexibility for real-world settings, uh, so it's much different than other types of research paradigms. Um, this concept that the development of guidelines alone does not necessarily translate to use, and this is an important role for uh, implementation science and global health. And then this idea that there's a lot of value in the exchange of ideas from one type of collaboration, uh, like our collaboration at, at Butaro, where we've really had the resources to test a lot of strategies, and then applying those lessons learned to a, a, a place like Tanzania. <coughs> okay, so I, I will now switch gears. We've talked about some basic uh, tenets of implementation science. I'm going to circle back and um, talk about how we're using these methods to address one of the most difficult ethical challenges we face as clinicians. Um, and so I, I'll give you some background information. This is a timeline to sort of explain the evolution of our radiotherapy referral program in Rwanda. Um, in 2012, when Butaro opened, there were, there were no radiation machines in, in Rwanda. Um, and we established an agreement with the Uganda Cancer Institute in Kampala to send about 10 patients per month. Um, for, and these were mostly cervical cancer and head and neck cancer patients who were receiving a complete course of chemo radiation, and it cost about $3,000 per patient total to get them up there for lodging in addition to the treatment. Um, and so for several years, that sort of met the needs of, of our patient uh, population while we were still growing, but as the volumes grew, we, the, the requirements increased, and we were able to increase our capacity from 10 to 15 to 20 patients per month. Um, and, and around that time, so I, I arrived uh, early 2015, and, and when I got there, um, by the time I got there, there were more patients than, than we could send. And so the clinicians, including myself, were in this uh, situation where we had to decide which patients to send for radiation. And, and these were very difficult decisions because often the, this meant the difference between life and death, literally. These were patients with locally advanced cervical cancer who without radiation um, would definitely die of their disease but were potentially curable. Um, and so we got together with our advisors um, and we developed some guidelines. This was, and, and you know, it was, we had a two-hour meeting and our experts um, helped us come up with a system based on 
their perception and, and knowledge of the survival benefit. Um, but, you know, it was a little bit of back of the envelope in the sense that we weren't looking at the data in front of us and, and going through and making um, calculations. But nevertheless, it was a huge improvement to have some objective criteria. Um, unfortunately, a couple months later, the radiotherapy machine in Kampala broke down. It made the international news one day that the one cobalt machine that was serving Uganda, Rwanda, Congo, Burundi, had broken down beyond repair. And it turns out the radioactive source had expired years ago. Um, and so it was, a, it was a tragedy. And so the Partners in Health Leadership scrambled to try to find another destination for our patients and ultimately made an agreement with Nairobi Hospital, which was a private hospital in Kenya. Um, it was more expensive, but we thought that the quality of care was probably better. They have a linear accelerator machine and seem to have higher quality systems in place. Um, because it was more expensive, the capacity to send patients decreased uh, initially, so we were only able to send five patients a month, but slowly that has increased, and we're now back to something like 10 to 12 per month. Um, and we're all very excited because um, Rwanda has um, installed two new linear accelerators in the capital city, and they've begun treating patients um, sort of unofficially, but the, we're waiting for the official announcement that they're going to open um, to the public sector. So um, I, I have a background in ethics, um, as you heard, and I was very interested in using ethical principles and frameworks to try to improve this system. Um, and so um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our project to do that. The, the first question is, okay, well, I, I told you that we are only able to send 10 patients per month for radiotherapy. Well, how many patients need radiotherapy? Um, and, and so there's a metric called the radiotherapy utilization rate, which was new to me. It's the, it's the proportion of new cases of cancer with an indication for radiotherapy based on evidence-based guidelines. So that includes uh, patients who could benefit from radiotherapy for curative treatment or local disease control or palliation. Um, and there's been a lot of studies using this metric, and essentially um, they they conclude that sort of globally, at least 50% of patients could benefit from radiotherapy. Uh, this is a chart from a great paper, if you're interested in this topic, um, by Rifat Atun and others from Lancet from a few years ago, showing the radiotherapy utilization rate um, by cancer type. Um, you can see that it's very high for, just generally speaking, for breast, cervical cancer, um, head and neck cancer. Um, but the, the survival benefit uh, is, is highest for cervical and head and neck. Um, and this is, uh, I, I'm pointing out here that four of the five most common adult cancers at Butaro have high radiotherapy utilization rates. So, that's um, breast, cervical, head and neck, and rectal. And we crunch the numbers and, uh, you know, looking at our average patients per disease per year, the radiotherapy utilization rate, and found that um, 58 patients per month could benefit in some way from radiotherapy. Um, and 
as we've talked about, we only have 10 spots, so the, hence the conundrum. So how do we decide who to, who to send for, for radiation? So over the years, this process has evolved, um, and essentially we, the clinicians see patients in clinic and determine whether they have an indication for radiotherapy. Um, if they do, we add them to a waiting list, which is like a Google <coughs> spreadsheet that we all share. Um, and then when it's time to send a new cohort every four to six weeks, the clinicians get together and select patients using a set of prioritization guidelines. Um, and we call them and, and usually ask them to come back to Butaro for evaluations. And that part seems like just logistics, but that actually often is the difference between a patient going for treatment and not being able to go for treatment because there are so many barriers in them getting these last-minute tests and getting back and forth. This is a screenshot of our waiting list um, to give you the sense that it's long, <laughs> essentially. There, uh, when I took this screenshot, there were something like 90 patients on the waiting list, and they're color-coded by their radiotherapy prioritization, which I'll get to in a second. But the red patients are mostly cervical cancer uh, stage 3B, which is lower on our list. And, and many of these patients have probably been on the list for months. Um, and we'll probably not get to go. This is the prioritization guidelines that we, so, so I mentioned that in February 2016, we sat around with our advisors and came up with guidelines. Um, I won't go through all of them, but I want you to get a sense for what this actually looks like. Um, and again, these were based on estima estimations of survival benefit from radiotherapy um, in particular. Um, so the task before us was to decide how do we improve this process using uh, literature and, and theories and frameworks from, from ethics. Um, I'll just spend a couple minutes talking about some important principles in this priority setting work. Um, the, the first is the, the terms rationing and resource allocation, which I think are often used interchangeably, but are actually different. So, so rationing refers to making priority decisions in the setting of absolute scarcity. So you have a certain number of ventilators or a certain number of vaccines or dialysis machines or radiotherapy spots. Those decisions about who to prioritize are uh, are rationing decisions. Um, and, and typically, rationing decisions are, you know, you're choosing between people. Um, whereas resource allocation is generally um, making priorities in the setting of relative scarcity. And this typically refers to making priority deci decisions when you're setting budgets. So if you have a, a pot of funds, how are you going to decide, um, you know, uh, how much to spend on radiotherapy versus how much to spend on increasing the chemotherapy formula versus should we be spending money on childhood malnutrition instead. So those are resource allocation decisions. Um, and I, I'll just touch on this for a second. There are many ethical theories that um, people have developed over the centuries for um, priority setting, and especially when it comes to rationing care. Um, there, there are sort of two major 
theories that are relevant. Um, utilitarianism is the most um, well-known and the most prominent when it comes to healthcare, which is this idea of maximizing the greatest good for the greatest number of people, um, and is really what underpins cost-effectiveness analysis. And, and certainly when we decided that we were going to ration our radiotherapy based on survival benefit, that was a utilitarian decision. Um, the most common sort of um, value or, or the theoretical framework that comes into conflict with utilitarianism is deontology. So deontology is this focus on um, what constitutes someone's ethical duty or, or moral duty. Um, and it's more about the, the means um, rather than the ends. And, and in our situation, the rule of rescue is the deontologic principle that is relevant. And that's this idea that there's a special moral obligation to the patient sitting in front of you. Um, and, and so, you know, that comes up in our radiotherapy situation a lot, because if there's a patient sitting in front of you who's in excruciating pain from a, from a bone met, who could get one fraction of radiotherapy, this, there's this idea that, you know, a lot of clinicians feel that they have a duty to treat that patient. Um, even if it's, you know, not going to, it wouldn't be the most cost-effective use of that resource. So these are the ethical theories that, and there are many others, but these are the main ones that we encounter. Um, and then there's this idea in the ethics uh, literature that, you know, there are so many different theories and principles that, that, people, that, that reasonable people feel should be used to make these difficult decisions. We're never going to come to a consensus. So instead, let's focus on the procedures for making these decisions. And this is a very popular idea in the field. Um, it's basically a movement towards establishing fair procedures for decision making. Um, And there's one more concept that I want to talk about while we're talking about resource allocation. I think that these decisions about how to allocate scarce resources um, are, are common in global health. And I think they, the, what we have to remember is this, um, you know, that we're all influenced by this, this idea, the socialization for scarcity, which is the underlying assumption that um, you know, resources for poverty reduction or global health initiatives will always be in short supply. Um, and that's been the dominant logic of global health for centuries. Um, but we, and so often priority setting in global health in many contexts is framed as, a, as an either or debate. Should we put money into prevention or treatment or communicable diseases or, or non-communicable diseases when, um, in fact, there, there's more wealth in the world than, than ever before. This is a picture to remind you of that, of um, the Boeing 787 Dreamliner, which is a very expensive airplane. Um, and economists have written at length about the small adjustments we could make in terms of redistribution distributing resources to lift the, uh, the bottom billion out of poverty. So, so I just want to present this concept that it's important when we're talking about how to slice the, the resource pie that we also think about how do we advocate to grow the pie in the first place. So 
Coming back to um, our project in Rwanda, we, we have set out to evaluate and improve our system for radiotherapy priority setting. Um, uh, the project, we have, I have a grant from the Greenwall Foundation, which is an ethics research foundation, um, that has three aims. The first is to describe the experience that we've had with radiotherapy priority setting uh, using qualitative and quantitative methods, which we've completed the data collection for that, and we are now in the process of analyzing it. The second aim is to develop and implement fair deliberative process for priority setting at Butaro, and this aim is really that gets to that idea of um, it's important to establish procedures uh, that, that we feel are conducive to ethical decision-making, even if we disagree about which principles should be used. Um, and then the third aim is to go back to those prioritization guidelines and revise them using a much more rigorous approach. Um, so we're in the process of doing that. These are some, this is a, a list of, of factors and values that have come out of the qualitative interviews so far. And I put this up here to give you a sense of how complicated this is. So, you know, we talked about survival benefit. There are actually many different clinical factors that are relevant in calculating um, the, the incremental survival benefit of radiotherapy. I won't read them for you, but you can see them on the right. Um, and then there are many non-clinical factors that um, that the doctors on the ground feel are are very important. So, so age, for example, not as it plays into that survival benefit calculation, but as it relates to you know people's um, right to to live. The, the expected lifespan. So if we had a highly curable patient um, who was, you know, 60 years old and a less curable patient who was 30 years old, many people would say, well, the 60-year-old is, is, is close to the, the average lifespan in Rwanda. We should um, prioritize that patient who's, who's younger. Um, I spent on the waiting list, um, the, the social value of that that patient, their economic status, their health behaviors, um, which comes up for the head and neck cancer patients, nationality is a really difficult one. And, and I'll tell you that the, some of these values, you know, there, were, there was a lot of consensus. The, a lot of people felt like pediatric patients should be prioritized even if their chance of cure was less, whereas other values were much more divisive, like nationality or social value. So um, we are using the qualitative data to combine it with um, a sort of our objective process. Um, and essentially, we're in, in, a, in our effort to, to revise the prioritization guidelines. So we've gone through this three-step process. We've done a literature review to, um, to get a whole database full of um, our best knowledge of, of survival benefit across cancer types. Um, we have uh, consulted with expert radiation oncologists. In, in February, we held a session alongside a meeting during D.C. where we had engaged their input after um, we've ranked our priority groups based on the literature review. And then we held a final deliberation by the team in Rwanda um, 
it, taking into account the qualitative data that we have so far, the expert recommendations and the objective data that we came up with in our literature review. And we are in the process now of finalizing the revised guidelines. This is the latest draft, hot off the press. Um, and, and really what this does is takes our first draft of the guidelines that I already showed you and um, and sort of shuffles them around. We, we at the um, strong uh, feeling of our clinicians, we removed age cutoffs, for example, um, and we adjusted the, the ranking based on the quantitative assessment of the incremental benefit of radiotherapy. Um, and this is what we've come up with, and we are still tweaking it. <laughs> um, and again, to bring home the point that advocacy and growing the pie is important, this is, these are pictures of the shiny new radiotherapy facility in Kigali. Um, it's not yet open to the public, but we anticipate that it will be soon. And so it um, reminds us that these processes are very dynamic, and we hope to be at the point soon where we no longer need those prioritization guidelines. Um, so key concepts from that story are some basic concepts for you about priority setting from the ethics literature, the difference between rationing and resource allocation, um, the, some of the major ethical theories that guide this work, and the concept of socialization for scarcity and the need for advocacy, um, and, the, and how ethical frameworks might be used in implementation research. Okay, and that is it. Oh. That's my <laughs> acknowledgement slide. Thank you very much for your question. I had uh, that was wonderful, inspiring. Um, so, um, resource-based strategy, guideline stratification. Yeah. Uh, you, you alluded to it, but didn't talk too much about it. Oh, sure. And, and do you ever worry that that kind of normalizes um, less than ideal yeah. guidelines compared to resource? Reading? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. That comes up a lot um, because what you don't want to do is you know endorse a substandard of care, right? And um, and I think that the that our colleagues in Rwanda or Tanzania would be the first to say that. You know, there, there's this. So the the way the resource stratification guidelines generally work are there are four different tiers. That, you know, the most basic re level of resources, and then the next step up, the next step up, and then the sort of ideal situation. Um, and the I think that a lot of clinicians in in low resource settings would say that they're a tool for advocacy to say we don't want to be at, at that lowest tier. We want to continue to move up. Here are the specific resources that we would need to go from the core level to the basic level. Um, I, I think another important point is that often our, our colleagues in these countries are seeing, um, are, are using, they're seeing patients who can pay privately, and they're seeing patients who can't pay anything, and then they're seeing a range in between. So, um, you know, it's it's typically not black and white. Where you know, in Rwanda, they're always they're they're only using the basic level for all cancers. It it, it depends on what disease you're talking about 
and what resource you're talking about. And so it's, it's really, I think, more as a tool to figure out how to tailor care to the resources that you have at your immediate disposal. And then how can ministries and, and programs, um, you know, figure out how to prioritize what resources to advocate for next? Um, that, that was a great talk. Um, you talked about um, you said we a lot, and, and I'm, I'm not sure when you're when you're doing this prioritization exercise. Yeah. To what extent is that we include the 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 Rwandan staff? Yeah, yeah. And what are the tensions? Because it, yeah, tensions. yeah. Great question. So. Um, so the dynamic in Rwanda is a little different than if we were trying to do this in Tanzania where there are several trained oncologists. In Rwanda, because the, uh, our, our colleagues on the ground are generalists, they don't have specialized oncology training, they defer to us a lot when it, us meaning um, you know, US-based advisors, and, uh, when it comes to the you know, any decisions in general that require specialized oncology care. But that said, they are absolutely at the table when, when all of these decisions are being made. So um, I would say in, when we did our first sort of back of the envelope deliberation back in 2016, it, we were in a room full of um, you know, stakeholders from the program, Rwandan clinicians, expat clinicians, and, and our expat advisors, and a couple of program leaders. But um, when it comes to the objective criteria, they defer to us. Now, that was an important part of why I felt like we needed to do qualitative research to hear their voices, really. And, and my, the qualitative interviews were with um, like 25 participants, including Rwandan nurses, Rwandan doctors, Rwandan program leaders, as well as the expats involved in the program. Um, and I, I felt like that was a, it, it was really important to get actual data on their views and, and perceptions. Um, and so I would say that, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, I don't know that there are tensions along the lines of, of expats and, and Rwandans in terms of, you know, arguments about which values to consider, for example. Um, there's actually a fair amount of heterogeneity among the Rwandans when you look at the qualitative data. Um, so I, I can't think of a specific example where there's, well, I guess, I, I, I guess one general difference is that I think those of us with oncology training are more comfortable looking at the data and making a decision based on data. And we're also generally more removed than they are from the patient in front of them. So, um, so I, I think, you know, with some of these questions about always prioritizing kids or prioritizing, you know, a mother of several children over a, a bachelor with the same otherwise. So those, I think, perhaps the, our Rwandan colleagues are more likely to use non-clinical factors to make decisions. Oh, okay. Thank you.